Christ has triumphed. Chapters 4 and 5 we said stand as an introduction to the rest of the book. If you remember in chapter 4 the focus is on God the Father. There at the very center of the vision that John gets into heaven. The very center is the throne with God the Father seated upon the throne. And we said last time we looked at uh, these two sections of praise in chapter 4. First of all to God the Father for who he is and then to God the Father for what he has made, what he has created. Um, And we made the observation last time that there in chapter 4 there is no praise and worship to Jesus Christ and certainly not for our salvation. First and foremost is to God for who he is and then to God for what he has made. And can we just remind ourselves if we'd had a week to, to a couple of weeks to think on that that before we go into chapter 5 and look at the worship of the Lamb and Christ for what he has done that while that is the centre of our worship so much of our worship um, I guess if we were to count up the number of hymns and songs we sing in praise and worship that don't include within it something of praise for what Christ has done on the cross and rightly so that that must never become our only theme of worship If that becomes our only theme of worship, we stand in great danger of our worship starting to orientate itself around me. You know, I want to praise God for one thing only, what he's done for me. Uh, Great am I, I'm I'm at the centre of God, sort of thing. Um, It's not like that at all. And if you're in any doubt about that, just think about the angels. There is not an angel who can praise and worship God for his grace towards him in salvation. There is not an angel that's been saved by the death of Christ. They certainly worship God though. Uh, You know, they worship God for who he is and they worship God for what he has made. Uh, Although they can't worship him for their salvation. And my friends, we need to make sure those two massively important areas of uh, worship are there in our prayers, in our sung worship and in our, our meditation as we go through life. So with that said, as we come into chapter 5, an angel appears uh, with a message from God. And this angel speaks out asking this all-important question. In fact, in terms of redemptive history, in terms of God's purposes and plans for lost humanity, it's the one important question. And it's voiced there in verse 2. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now, as we've already said, this is uh, imagery, this is largely visionary, um, and the language that, that comes here, some, of course, has got to be taken literally, but others of it uh, we're not meant to take literally. God is pure spirit, so he doesn't have a right hand. He's not holding anything in his right hand. Um, there's certainly, in heaven, there isn't this scroll with seven seals on it. This is a, an image of something. So what's it all about? Well, let's just ask three very simple questions. The first is, what is this sealed scroll? And then secondly, why is it so important that it should be opened? And then thirdly, why is it that it needs someone so exceptionally worthy in order to open it? So what is this sealed scroll? Well, it's simply God's plans for redemptive history. It's all that God has purposed, all that God has willed to take place. Everything that God's purposed from the fall of humanity through to the new heavens and new earth, populated by the redeemed. How he's going to save mankind, how he's going to be able to forgive sinners, how he's going to call the nations into his kingdom, how he's going to deal with those who refuse his means of grace. 
how he's going to set up the new heavens and new earth in which dwell righteousness. This scroll is, as it were, that complete plan that God has made. I hope you find it very encouraging that it's that set and that fixed that it can be presented to John as though it's all written down on a scroll. I mean, much of it still has to happen. But it's that certain and God cannot change his mind and God is that fixed in his purposes and what he's going to do that John is shown it as a completed document. There's nothing left to doubt. There's nothing left to, well, maybe this will happen or maybe that will happen. I, I, I don't know if God's really got a plan for how he's going to deal with that situation or this situation. God has got it perfectly under his sovereign control. So why is it so important for this scroll to be opened? Well, the answer is simply this. This is God's plans. This is God's purposes. They're known to God. God's not in any doubt about what he's going to do. But it's hidden to us. It's secret to us. And more than that, it cannot come to pass on earth until someone puts it into operation. Until someone steps forward onto the human scene who says, I can be the channel for that to happen by how is God's purposes going to come to pass without someone to champion them? And all through the Old Testament, God has been promising that he will save people. All through the Old Testament, God's been forgiving people. He's been passing over their sins. But they've got to be dealt with. Someone has got to come onto the human stage and act as that substitute. So let's ask the third question. Why does it require someone so worthy? Well, the answer is simple, of course. We're back to Romans 3, aren't we? Romans three twenty-three: For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, sin isn't just man's biggest problem. Sin was God's biggest problem. Ever since the fall, he's been forgiving people. He's he's been saying, I forgive you your sin. And there is just as it were, this mountain of sin building up that God has somehow got to deal with. Paul says he's got to be just. And justice demands that sin is paid for. So somehow he's got to be just and deal with this sin and yet at the same time justify sinners. And, and Paul poses the question there in Romans 3, how, how can that happen? There's been this this paradox all through the Old Testament that God's saying, I, I forgive you but I've got to deal with that sin and it's not been being dealt with. And so someone's got to step onto the stage of human history who can be the one who becomes the way whereby this mountain of sin is dealt with and God is both just and the justifier of sinners. And so that person has to be one who can deal with sin. Not only their own sin, if they were to have any, but the sin of mankind. And so the cry goes out through the whole of the world, as it were. This angel just let, puts it out there amongst all the human beings and all the angels and the archangels and says, is there anyone who is able to step forward and deal with the issue 
of man's sin. Is there anyone who can step forward and open this scroll? Who can bring these plans to pass? And there is no one. There is no one on the face of this planet or in heaven above. Amongst the created beings. Who can deal with man's sin. My friend, stop right here. Can I say this with all gentleness and respect to other religions? Buddha does not step forward. Muhammad does not step forward. Allah does not step forward. Mary does not step forward. A saint does not step forward. There is no one, but no one who is able to step forward and say, I can do it. And that's why John weeps. He sees there is all of God's plans. There are all of God's purposes. That that is the answer to my need. And no one is able to come and open it and put it into operation. And well might he weep. If Christ had never gone to the cross, we would be without hope. This world would be going to hell literally every single person without exception. If Jesus Christ had not gone to that cross. My friends, do we appreciate that? Do we appreciate, first of all, how bad our own sin is? That we can't even save ourselves, let alone save anybody else. The best we can do, the only thing we can do, and it's the most terrifying, horrific thought possible, is that we can spend eternity trying to pay off our own sin. Trying to somehow meet the debt of our own sin. We can't deal with it. And nor can anybody else. And in this world in which we live, in this culture in which we live, which is putting up all these other names and saying, you know, you can speak of Christ, but don't, don't pull down somebody else's God. A couple of days ago, we had Jehovah's Witnesses coming around to the house, as people often do. And they're trying to set forward a Christ who is no Christ at all. My friends, there is no other. It's the Christ of the Bible or we're without hope. And so John weeps and weeps. For scripture says, Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. It is Christ or no one. And my friends, that's the message we just have to take out to the world. However uncomfortable it is, however politically incorrect it is, and we do it with respect, Scripture says, and we do it with gentleness, but we do it. Why do we love Christ? Why do we worship Christ? Because he's the Saviour. The only Saviour. Well, see, he is indeed the only qualified Saviour. Look at verses 5 to 7. These are just such beautiful, amazing verses, aren't they? Verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. And so John looks. The angel said to him, Behold, so he looks, and what does he see? Verse 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. We've mentioned that way of describing Holy Spirit. We've encountered that already in the earlier chapters. Sent out from all the earth. 
And he, Christ, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. John sees this most amazing sight in heaven. The lion king, the lion lamb, Jesus Christ, our king. See how he's described, verse 5, as a lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Quoted the lion, the witch in the wardrobe already a couple of times, haven't we? You remember that bit in it where um, Beaver, uh, he's, uh, he's talking about Aslan. And, uh, and the, the children have got the idea that Aslan's a man, you know. And, it, and he says, Aslan a man? Said, said Beaver, Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. The greatest, the most powerful of all animals. The, the one who is strong enough to conquer, the one who is able to conquer, the one who can triumph over everybody else. And this is Christ. He's the root of David, verse 5. He's the promised Messiah. He's the one who will redeem his people. And yet when John looks at him, what does he see? Not a lion, but a lamb. Not a lion with blood of the conquered coming out of his mouth, but a lamb with his own blood on him, looking as though he's been slain. Jonathan Edwards talks of these verses, doesn't he, as the, the juxtaposition of divine excellences. Isn't it just that? This amazing picture of Christ being the lion lamb. You know, the, the lion destroys the lamb, the lamb runs in fear of the lion, and yet in Christ the two come together. He's the conqueror. He's the one who can triumph. He's the one who can destroy all his enemies like the lion. But he does it by laying down his own life like a sheep. He does it by submitting himself in our place to the Father. Isn't that an amazing picture? And so perfect was that sacrifice. So well did he meet the need. So wondrously did he qualify. Sorry, I've lost myself. to open the seals to remove the seals and open the scroll that death couldn't hold him and gloriously he came back to life again so although he's a slain lion he's standing victorious he's not laying there dead he's alive still bearing the marks of crucifixion my friends do you see why he alone is worthy why he alone is is entitled to the worship in heaven. I don't care how politically incorrect it is. I don't care what force is brought against us to stop proclaiming Christ. Who else can we speak of? Jesus Christ is the one who went to the cross. Jesus Christ is the one who triumphed. Jesus Christ is the one who has dealt with man's sin. Jesus Christ is the one in whom I hope, in whom I'm certain. He is my Redeemer, my Saviour, my King. And He's the one who has the right to my worship and the right to my testimony. He is the one who deserves to be lifted up there, out in our communities, in our culture, and proclaimed as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's the only qualified Saviour 
and is the only glorified champion. Look at verses 8 to 14. He steps forward, verse 7, and takes from the Father this, this scroll. Seven seals on it, and seven is always perfection. It's perfectly sealed. There is no way that anyone can even just sort of peek a little glimpse into it. It's not as if one tiny bit of it can be put into operation. It needs someone who can break those seals, open it and say, here it is, I've laid it out, I've come to do it. And victoriously complete it. And see what we're told of him here. He alone is the mediator. He's the one who takes the scroll, verse 8. He redeems man, verse 9. He receives the prayers of the saints. He's the mediator. He's the one who can act between sinful man and holy God and bring sinful man into the presence, into the acceptable presence of holy God. My friend, rejoice that at the very center of the cosmos there is glorified humanity. There is the God-man, Christ Jesus. That when we come to pray, he is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. That, that, that his blood mediates for us. His blood atones for us. His blood has made propitiation for our sin. I can stand there before the holy God who created the whole cosmos. The, the, the one who is so pure and holy that sin cannot come near him. And I, a sinner, can approach him because of Jesus. And in Jesus Christ, that way has been made open. He's the mediator, and he alone, and he's the redeemer. Here's the third song that John hears, isn't it? Chapter 4, we had the song for God the Father, for who he is. The song to God the Father for what he has created. And now the third song, and the third song is to Jesus Christ for what he has done. That he is the mediator. Look what his life's blood achieved. He's brought people, verse uh, 9, he has brought people, ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nations. He's ransomed them, he's purchased them, he's bought them. He's not, he's not ransomed them, he's not bought them from Satan. I mean, there's been a heresy many times in history to that effect. That's not what he's saying at all. It's saying that there is a debt with sin. There's a debt that's got to be paid. And Christ paid it with his own life's blood. He purchased us for God out of our sin. And look what he's done. He's made us into his kingdom and appointed us as his priests to serve God and to reign on earth. What a privileged position we have. I love it where Paul's writing to the church of Corinth, you know, and that church is in such a mess, isn't it? You know, they've got all of these problems and everything else, and Paul turns around and says, don't you know you're going to judge angels one day? Don't you realize that one day you're going to be exalted and you're going to be sitting with Christ? And I'm not sure how we're to understand what he's saying there. I think probably what it means is that we will be there giving approval to Christ's judgment on the angels. Isn't that amazing? That when the fallen angels are brought before fallen angels are brought before Christ in judgment, we'll be sitting there with Christ, giving our approval to Christ's righteous judgment on them. 
What a privilege. We're going to reign in the new heavens and new earth. We're going to walk where Christ walks. We're going to see Christ. We're going to enjoy all the blessings and privileges that are Christ. We're co-heirs with Christ. He's the mediator, he's the redeemer, and he is God. Verses 11 to 14. Just listen to the praise anthem there. And, and, and weep for joy. Verse 11, I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and under heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. Friend, verse 12. We've already seen how important the number seven is in this book of Revelation, haven't we? It's perfection. And what do we find in verse 12? Well, uh, seven things to praise Jesus for. Power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. In other words, we praise him for the completeness of his perfection in everything. So that's the picture that's there. He is altogether worthy of our praise. And so finally we have it there in verse 13. The throne is now shared. Divinity and now humanity. The triune God who from all eternity has reigned on the throne. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But now Christ has a second nature. And that comes up into heaven at the ascension. And sits down at the right hand of the Father. And glorified man takes center stage. The perfect redeemer, Christ Jesus. Oh, my friend. And every creature... All of the redeemed of all times bring their praise to him. My friend, what does this chapter do for you as we close? I mean, what does it do for you as you read this? Does it bring you to tears? Does it, does it just lift your heart? Does it make you long for the day when you're going to see this with your own eyes? Do you get really excited? I, th- I think you can, you can determine an awful lot about your spiritual state. By, sim- by simply asking yourself, what does this chapter do for me? I mean, if you can read this and it doesn't move you, my friend, something is wrong. If you can read this and, and you don't find your heart pulsing and, 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 your, you, you know, and, and your emotions welling up in you, something is wrong. Take note of it. Go away and pray about it. Go away and... And search your heart and your spirit. Why, why doesn't this affect you? This, this is massive. This is the King, Christ Jesus. This is the worship of heaven. Those who've already died in Christ, their spirits are there before the throne bringing him their praise. The angels are there giving him their praise. When we join our voices together in worship on Sunday, our praise joins theirs in heaven. 
you know, the prayers, the incense, the bowls of incense, the prayers of the saints, that's there adding to his worship. Our day is coming. Coming soon, please, Lord Jesus. When we will be there too. And not just our spirits, but the new heavens and new earth. Glorified humanity, worshipping the King. My friend, your heart should thrill at this. It really should. I pray it does.